0: because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in breaking into the fields of social justice, criminal justice and the law, then this is the episode for you, because my next guest is the director and founder of the Three Strikes Justice Project at Stanford Law School, which has been called a voice for the forsaken by The Economist magazine. But before I introduce you to Michael Romano, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays with unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Michael Romano, the director and founder of the Three Strikes and justice advocacy projects at Stanford Law School. Previously, Michael was director of the Stanford Criminal Defense Clinic. He currently teaches criminal justice policy and advanced criminal litigation practice and has published several scholarly and popular press articles on criminal law, sentencing policy, prisoner reentry and recidivism, and mental illness in the justice system. In 2019, Governor Gavin Newsom appointed Michael as chairperson of California's new criminal law and policy committee, the Penal Code Revision Committee. He's also been named one of California's top lawyers, and his work has been profiled in a variety of news outlets, including The New York Times Magazine, Rolling Stone, The Economist, and the award-winning PBS feature documentary, The Return*. Michael, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated out there in San Francisco and ready to go?
1: I'm ready to go. Thank you for that very flattering introduction.
0: Oh my goodness. It's actually not even everything that you've done. So it it's just kind of scratching the surface, hopefully wetting the appetite of our young listeners to give them a little bit of a preview as to what is in store for them in this Espresso Shots episode. As we dive into the first Espresso Shot, Michael, the question is, what entry-level jobs are available to young people who want to break into the
1: field of social justice, criminal justice and the law? Well, the good news is, is that I think especially over the past summer, there's been an incredible amount of interest and frankly, philanthropic support for organizations that do this work across the country. Of course, there's the COVID related shutdowns and difficulty uh, working remotely. But in some ways, that can be an advantage because I think that some people might be able to even get jobs, you know, perhaps across the country working from home, at least for the time being. So there are countless organizations from the very large, like the ACLU, that has offices all across the country that do this work, that have entry level positions for folks, um, even without law degrees to more community-based organizations that are specific to particular communities and particular interests within criminal justice reform from folks who do public policy advocacy to people who do what I think is the hardest, in some ways, the most rewarding and important work, direct services to people in the criminal legal system, whether it be people who are um, actually in jail and their families who need support, people who are getting out of jail, or prison and need support and help their, what we call community reentry. So there's a number of different ways to get into this, both, I guess, you know, from a national perspective, but also from a very uh, local perspective. And unfortunately, I don't think that there are a great number of hubs of resources. So mm. it, it does require a little bit of researching and scratching the surface oneself especially once you move beyond a national organization, if you're interested in doing local work, which is actually what I would encourage a young person to do.
0: You anticipated what my follow-up question was going to be, which was, are there any listservs or blogs out there that (sighs) aggregate different jobs in this field? But I guess... Google is our friend, so
1: Google has to be the friend. I I wish that there were, and maybe somebody should. Maybe that's the next. Maybe that's the entry level job that somebody should create a kind of service like this. And that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's just that I don't. I'm not familiar with anything that's really reliable on that score.
0: Okay, fair enough. Well, hopefully, if it doesn't exist, one of our listeners will take it upon themselves to create it. Sure. So, Michael, what is a useful hard and soft skill?
1: that you look for in the young people that you hire? Uh, gosh. The most important thing I would say in somebody that I hire is reliability. And this is something that, you know, I carry through to our work. Meaning, if you say you're going to do something, you do it and you do it, you know, 1000%. And I would much rather have somebody either show up on time or send in a letter that is short and modest, but perfect, rather than some lengthy, sprawling thing that might have a lot of interesting information, but is less than, let's say, perfect. So reliability is probably my number one thing that I'm looking for. It's what we tell our clients. I tell my clients that I can't necessarily help get you out of prison, but I will promise to help you every single day. And I'm very, very specific about what I can promise to do. And I am absolutely deliver on that. And vice versa, I try to be as clear as possible in the things that are are beyond my control. So from everybody that we look to hire, that may be the number one quality is people understanding, in some ways, understanding their limits. What can you absolutely deliver and then deliver it? And what can you maybe try your best or things that are beyond your control. And, and knowing those, it entails some level of modesty because I think people who overpromise is something that I look for and would be a, a red flag, and but also having confidence to know that the things that, if you say it's going to get done, it's going to get done. And does that answer your question?
0: Yes, certainly. It answers the, I would put that in the category of soft skill. Okay. What about a hard skill that you think, somebody who is looking to get into this field really wants to nail?
1: I guess I'm not sure exactly what a hard skill is, but like uh, writing, is that a hard skill? That, a technical skill. Mm-hmm. Like a te- technical skill. Well, being an extraordinarily strong writer is super important. And it, it's similar to what I was saying before. I think writing is extraordinarily difficult to do well and simply. I tell my students and my, you know, the work that I do is like, I want the perfect eighth grade essay. It doesn't need to be fancy. Don't be fancy. It just needs to be really super well done. And the more complicated the idea that you're trying to communicate, the simpler your sentence and paragraph structure should be. I didn't make that up myself. I Malcolm Gladwell actually said that and I think it's a really good lesson to live by. So very strong, simple, clear writing is critical to being a lawyer, I think, but also working in in this field and generally communicating in general is is super helpful. So I hope that that is closer to what you're looking for. Yeah, that's
0: fantastic. And it actually reminds me, Michael, of both of our former careers. We both started out as journalists. And I think one of the many things that you learn to do as a journalist is to write clearly and simply. You don't find, unless it's a very flowery feature (laughs) or, I don't know, some of the longer form maybe magazine pieces where you might get a little more of that sort of fiction-like prose. But for the most part, what sets journalists apart, the good from the great, is the fact that they're able to distill complex ideas into clear and simple
1: language. I could not anymore. And uh, when I see cover letters or writing samples that are overly complicated and sentences that go on for lines and lines, it's a red flag for me. Let's put it that way. And vice versa, when I see something very clearly written, crisp and short and to the point and confident, that's something that, that appeals. Terrific.
0: Mike, what about someone's major is it a deciding factor to get into this field? In other words, if they haven't studied the law as an undergrad, if they haven't studied something
1: related to criminal justice or social justice, is it a deal breaker? I don't think so at all. I mean, I mean, first of all, if you want to become an attorney, obviously, you need to go to law school. So let's just put that aside. And you know, law school admissions, I think, have become pretty open to people from varying majors. And I've taught folks who were computer science majors who became excellent lawyers to people who took more maybe traditional majors like English or philosophy or history. So I don't think that that should be a limiting factor. And if even if you don't want to be a lawyer, I don't think a major is super critical. I think experience on the ground and and working, and as I said at the top, maybe even with a local organization and, and knowing people affected by the, the system, or sometimes I tell people, this especially applies to maybe younger people in high schools, they really want to learn things first off. I say, just go to court. Just go. I mean, now I guess with the virus, it's a lot harder. And just sit in there for an afternoon and see how hectic it is. See the kind of people who are there. See the races and the <laughs> obvious class differences between the folks who are there. Who are the people who are in handcuffs and who are the people who are in suits and and soak that kind of atmosphere up. And you could do that in an afternoon. And you can do that volunteering and working over the course of a year. And there's all sorts of things in between. I think that that is much more important and relevant than and of course people have life experiences too than necessarily being a, a economics major or a criminal justice major i mean all those things are interesting but what i'm looking to hire is somebody who is an interesting and interested person i almost never focus on the major that they may have had in undergrad
0: great what about a graduate school degree and this is less so mike for the young people who are looking for an entry level position in an advocacy organization who are not practicing law as a lawyer, how essential is it for them in order to succeed in this field that they get a law degree or they get a master's degree of some kind? And if so, what do you think are the most useful ones to have?
1: Well, if you're going to practice law, obviously you have to have a law degree. And if you actually want to represent people, that is legally required. But aside from that i think some very helpful degrees are a social work degree msw is extraordinarily helpful on many different levels within the legal system and probably we need the legal system needs to hire a whole army of social workers from police to prosecutors to defense lawyers i mean like desperate the field desperately needs that and of course there're public policy degrees to people who are interested in you know developing policy and County or state or even federal levels that may be helpful. But aside from a law degree, I would say social work degree. I would say might be the second most valuable. And after that, I think looking maybe more like five or ten years down the line, we're going to have a revolution in in criminal justice data, and uh, we're going to need people who know how to use data in a sophisticated way. So from computer scientists to Data scientists. Sociologists and uh, and data scientists. Yeah. So I think that that that's an emerging area as data comes online. Right now, it's it's pretty nascent. It's pretty, but I'd say three, five, ten years down the line. The way that in some ways biological sciences has turned towards a data system and valued that, I, I think the criminal justice will as well.
0: Oh, that is a fantastic insight to have. Thank you so much for sharing that. What about the life experiences, Mike? What do you think are the most useful experiences, those outside the classroom, people who've grown up in neighborhoods that have been disadvantaged, that have been marginalized, I can imagine would be super useful, but what do you think are the various life experiences that someone starting out in this field should try to cultivate or perhaps should just try to recognize they've had?
1: Well, let's start with where, where people who've come from neighborhoods that are disproportionately impacted by the criminal legal system and over-policed. And, and folks who have come through that and are interested in, in reform, I think, are incredibly valuable, necessary towards uh, making the system both improving public safety, and reforming the system so it can be less harmful. So there is that. And I think that people who have some of these experiences, even people who have been arre- you know, actually arrested and incarcerated, I've seen them apply for jobs or graduate school and almost try to hide those experiences in their applications. And I and I always say, that should be the first sentence of your applications. It'd be like, when I got out of prison, I de- decided to dedicate myself to X, because I think that that's a really extraordinary experience for somebody to go through and then to try to uh, make the world a better place. So I would think that that is a, a tremendous asset. For those of us, including myself, who are lucky enough to live in neighborhoods that we're not, so over policed and have never been incarcerated, obviously to to recognize our privilege. And you know, again, this is something that I didn't make up myself, but Brian Stevenson, one of my heroes, you know, one of his refrains is to get this is a little bit of a fancy way of putting it, but he says get get proximate to the change you're trying to create. And what he means is get close to it physically. And it's kind of one of the reasons why I said to Go to the downtown courthouse and sit there again. I know that we can't quite do that with COVID right now. To immerse yourself in the situation, go down to the homeless shelter, volunteer there. When jails and prisons do begin to open up, try to get experiences and see the people and the actual physical structures and buildings that this uh, this business is about.
0: Mm. That is a very telling word to use. And we will get into it more in the main time for coffee interview, because in preparing for our interview, one of the questions that I jotted down for you for our main time for coffee interview, Mike, is about the criminal justice industry and criminal justice Inc. or the prison Inc. And please check out show notes to see if Mike's main time for coffee interview has already dropped. So we'll just have a placeholder there. What is the best part for you, Mike, of being in this profession?
1: Oh, I'm very lucky. I get to help people who deserve to be released from prison win their freedom and uh, walk them out of jail after sometimes, you know, 20, 25 years. And um, it's... It's a pretty special thing to be able to do to help somebody, and then we do as, as best we can to help them, make sure they land on their feet, and get on their way with their lives. It's an extraordinary—that's a you know—that's an, an extraordinary challenge. Somebody who has been in prison for decades to reacclimate themselves to a free world, and so that's something that we work very hard on. But but the the most rewarding part is. The, the journey of sitting across the table from somebody who's serving a life sentence and saying, we're going to do everything that we can to help you. And then the day the judge says, okay, uh, this person should be released and uh, actually walking them out of prison. That, that's a pretty special thing that I get to do.
0: I can only imagine. And perhaps just to put a finer point on that, In many of these instances, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, Michael, but in many of these instances, these are individuals who were incarcerated, whether you want to use the word unjustly, but should not have been incarcerated for the length of time that they were incarcerated, if they should have been incarcerated at all.
1: Yes, so I mean, you know, we can talk about that for a long time. I used to work at the Innocence Project in New York, where you know we represented actually innocent people who were you know wrongfully convicted and absolutely shouldn't be in prison at all. It was the wrong person. Uh, That's not the work that I do now. I mean, the work that I do now is I represent people who have been sentenced to life under what we've called three strikes laws for extraordinarily minor crimes. So I represent people who have you know this is not exaggerating you know stolen a bicycle from an open garage. Stolen a pair of uh, shoplifted a pair of socks, uh, broken a church window, possession of a tiny, tiny fraction like zero point zero two grams uh, of drugs, and other extraordinarily petty crimes like that. And so, these people are absolutely guilty. We we almost never say that our clients are wrongfully convicted, and because they're three, three strikes law, they've committed other crimes in, in the past. However they've served their time for those crimes. And then serving life sentences for shoplifting a pair of socks, uh, I think is just extraordinarily unjust on its face. And so I guess to answer your question, yes, I think that they're unjustly incarcerated for the time they are. And in many cases, I mean, our clients are not only disproportionately people of color, as you might imagine, but they're also disproportionately mentally ill. And um, many of their crimes are the function of their mental illness. And I think that there's a very strong argument that they shouldn't have been incarcerated ever. And uh, instead, we'd all be better off. They would be better off. The community would be better off. It would be cheaper. It'd be more humane to provide treatment over punishment for many, many of these people.
0: A hundred percent. So the flip side of the great feelings that you have when you are able to get your clients released from prison or years and years of incarceration, what is the part of your current job, Mike, that sucks the most?
1: (laughs) Oh, uh, there's a lot of stuff that's hard. I'm very grateful and proud to work at Stanford Law School, but it's a university bureaucracy that I you know, have to manage sometimes. We also have to fundraise and support the work that we do. And while I am incredibly grateful also to the philanthropists who support our work, fundraising can be difficult and I mean, some, you know, honestly, sometimes it's, again, we get to talk about our work and ourselves, but it, it, it's, it's hard to sell yourself sometimes in a way that obviously, uh, when we lose our cases for our clients, especially clients that we've grown close to, that's the hardest and the saddest parts. And then it's a the whole other level of sadness. And it becomes quite profound when we realize that our clients are so accustomed to disappointment and losing candidly in court and having the system work against them, that frequently they take losses better than we do. And that's just really a sad state of the world as well. And then finally, we're tremendously successful. We win many more cases than we've lost. And the vast, vast majority of our clients get out do extraordinarily well and we work very hard to make sure that that happens. But a couple of them backslide and become homeless again, fall back into drugs. Uh, Thankfully, none have really hurt anyone or done anything violent. But that's also very sad and frustrating when our clients who we've worked so hard to get out of prison are unable to get their lives together. Frequently, it's not their own fault. It's situational. It's mental illness. It's developmental disability. It's overwhelming poverty, but it, that is also a very sad and frustrating part of our work as well. Mm,
0: I can imagine. Oh my gosh. So three final espresso shots. Sure. What is the best career advice you've ever gotten?
1: I'm going to answer it a couple of different ways. First of all, I grew up not being the best student, and you know having learning differences, and to have the confidence of certain people in my life from teachers uh, that I can do this, and I'm just as smart as anybody else, and that 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 was very very important to me, on a sort of daily basis. So I don't know if that quite qualifies as career advice, but you know that that was super critical is to find people and to realize your own self worth and. And really reflect and remember that. Find people who can show you that and that you trust. And more specifically, um, though, I remember very an attorney, an experienced attorney, told me once. He said, "What it what is fraud? What's the crime of fraud?" And I was like, "I don't really know." And he said, "Exactly." And he's like, "Everybody knows what murder is. That's that that's a simple one." But a, a really good attorney is much more important in a, in a fraud case than in a murder case, because uh, fraud is so much more complicated. And the point being is that there are, there are areas of the law and probably other areas of different professions that are that are very complicated. And because they're complicated, there hasn't been the same level of thought that's been given to them, or they don't have the same kind of cachet or a high profile as, let's say, murder cases and criminal law. And to find those areas and those nooks and crannies that haven't been explored, where smart people can make a big difference, because perhaps there isn't a lot of clarity either in the law or whatever the area might be. And so, I would tell young people to to seek out those areas where, which just it's, it's it's it is cloudy, it is uncertain, it's confusing. Those those are usually the best areas for opportunity.
0: Love that. And we should also mention you're doing this interview at home and you've got two teenagers and I think it's lunchtime there in California. So we may (laughs) be hearing some more excited noises as they get to break from school (laughs) to have lunch. I Um, apologize. No, not, not at all. It is all good. And that was wonderful advice. It actually makes me think, Mike, of the advice that various entrepreneurs have given about how to find success if you were to start your own business look where the gaps are look where no one else is and go there
1: uh, yeah i think that's 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 true i mean like there's there's certainly value in you know learning the the this, this super highway and the traditional way of doing things, because especially in the law, there's a lot of tradition. But I, but I agree with that a hundred percent. And to to be successful out of those lanes is to be entrepreneurial. I, I, I think that that's right.
0: And that's something else that we can talk about in our main time for coffee interview, because you certainly have been incredibly entrepreneurial in your career. Two final espresso shots. What? movies if any or netflix amazon hulu shows or books do you think accurately depict your profession
1: well i'd be remiss if i didn't plug the documentary about our work called the return so let's just start there that was a documentary film on pbs i think that the the netflix series about the central park 5 Jogger case and the wrongful convictions. I forget what the the name of that series is. That's extraordinary by Anna Devanny. I think it's how you pronounce her name. So I think that that is spectacular. And then I would also plug a there's a a book called Cuz and a shorter excerpt of it from the New York that was in the New Yorker called uh, Life of a South Central Statistic. I think was the title of it. And uh, I thought those were all very accurate, gave really good glimpses into the this, this world. So I'd encourage anyone who's interested to go seek those out. Was oh, that- well, I, and, and also, I also, I mean, like, there, there are the super classics in this world that, you know, I probably would be remiss if I didn't say just, you know, the two, you know, Old Testament and New Testament of criminal justice reform probably is the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, who's actually one of my law school teachers. She'll never remember me, but I'm very proud to have taken her class. And then uh, Just Mercy, the book by Bryan Stevenson that was made into a film earlier this year. So those are the super, super duper classics.
0: So was the Netflix program called When They See Us?
1: Yes, that's correct. That's what it's called. Okay.
0: We'll make sure to include links to all of those in our show notes. Final question. What would Java junkies be surprised to learn about this profession?
1: Oh, that it's fun. We have a great time. I mean, I think being a lawyer and going to law school has a bad rap. Maybe I'm just weird that way, but uh, I love law school and I love being a lawyer. Now, there are plenty of law jobs that I would not be interested in, but they're probably part plenty of jobs in every profession that I would not be interested in. But I think being a lawyer is incredibly fun and exciting. And um, I'm a big supporter of law school. So,
0: Oh, that is a fantastic note upon which to end. Once again, if you want to learn more, about what Michael does at the Three Strikes Project at Stanford University and more about how he has built his fascinating career, please check out show notes to see if his main Time for Coffee interview has already dropped. Michael, I want to thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the t for c community and for the incredibly important work that you and your students and your colleagues are doing to try to help so many people who are behind bars today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of t for c And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at